I mean, it's so easy to jump on this train and like, you know, go to Chamonix and believe that I could, there's an escapism to kind of finding luck and joy somewhere else. And I think that the problem is that when you're only spending your time optimizing their next moment, you're never living in the moment when you get there. I think it's such a stupid thing to do to say that, you know, I have these attributes, so therefore my beliefs are X. You have to remember that there are more people going to be born in, in the future than ever has been born. I think it's so horrible to see that we have a world where we're not collaborating about the big topics. It also means that my life has absolutely no value and I'm living for other people. Almost every person of the planet has something extremely interesting about them. Hello, Hampus. How's Sweden? I mean, Sweden is super crazy. I mean, Sweden is usually the, you know, a very non-controversial country in the world. I mean, Greta Thunberg, of course, made it a bit controversial for some people. But I think that, I mean, 2020 is the year when Sweden is also controversial on health topics like COVID. And I think that it's, uh, it's rare to be in a country that everybody in the world seems to have so, so strong opinions about. But otherwise, it's good. I think I'm not, I, I feel it's okay. It, but the craziest thing is how many people ask me about specific stuff and about Sweden and COVID-19. And I just have to remind them that I'm neither an immunologist nor a kind of a health expert. Are you still walking by standing by your desk? Yes, I am. But actually, I haven't done it. I actually didn't bring that to my home office. Um, so actually, I, had, I used to have this amazing... Um, belt that I could have as, as a walking when I was on long meetings. And I was actually helping me quite a lot to focus on the meetings. I think if I was born later, I'm born 1979. And I think if I was born 10 years later, I probably would have been in the group that got some discussion about if I had ADHD. And if you have whatever I have, ADD or something, I think that if I move part of my body and use my muscles, then somehow my brain is much more relaxed on focusing. So for me, it's like I'm the guy that has have like shaky leg syndrome or walking while I'm talking and life is so much easier to think. Um, so I used to love that when I had meetings. And now, because I didn't build it up in my home office, because now, of course, I'm working from home, um, I have to cope with this sort of new life uh, of not walking and talking. But it works. I think I'm adapting. So what was your record? How many kilometers you were walking just by doing work? Oh. I actually, the, the actually, the, I actually didn't record it. Like I, 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 um, I just walked. I didn't actually think about measuring it. I have this thing when when I start doing something, I usually start going in by writing a lot of, or sort of reading a lot of things about it and being very curious about it, and trying to figure out a good way of getting a good kind of quote unquote attack vector, so I know what how I should start. And then when I start to do that, I start to measure it somehow, like if it's running, you know, distance and speed and, and steps and stuff like that, or if it's baking, you know, uh, how much flour and whatever. Um, but then usually, actually, I try to get to a point when I stop measuring, because I find a lot of times that measuring kind of takes over after a while, and it becomes the goal of everything else. And then I, I kind of want to measure to a point when the measurements become um, kind of part of my practice without thinking about it, if you see my point. So like if, you know, I had a period when I measured my sleep and measured everything about my sleep, like temperature and hours, deep sleep, REM sleep, uh, time in bed, uh, hours in bed, uh, time up. Uh, I mean, every single data point you could with three different sensors and yada, yada, yada. And, uh, 
I have some of those installed still, but I'm not never looking at the data anymore. And I think the reason is because in the beginning I was trying to run all these experiments with like weighted blankets, uh, uh, cooled mattresses, uh, pincushion carpets when I went to bed, cold showers, all of these things. And then I found some things that I felt that I really liked and I stuck to those. And I kind of felt that there's no point of me measuring it. Uh, and I think the reason for that is that I think that there's a natural variance on a day-by-day -day or hour-by-hour, minute-by-minute basis on the, depending on what you do, right? And I think that I feel that if you're measuring it constantly and staring at the metrics, I at least tend to feel like, oh, tonight I did something wrong, but I should look at a weighted average over weeks or something like that. So for example, now when I'm staying at home, I'm moving a lot less than I otherwise done. So now I've actually found, I've seen on my kind of sleep curves that are averaged a week on week basis. I see that I'm actually sleeping slightly worse, but it's not data that I would like to look at on a daily basis because then I think it would be very hard because then it of course depends on if I had alcohol, if I ate food late or if I worked late or if I watched a movie or anything else. Um, and but it's much more interesting to look at a, a kind of weight like a weighted average over time because then of course I can see a trend that I'm starting to lose sleep over the last weeks and then I can think what's the biggest difference between these four weeks and the weeks before hmm COVID what's the biggest difference hmm I'm not commuting to work I'm not like walking to a restaurant at lunch huh and then I checked my uh, distance data and I saw oh that's actually decreased quite significantly oh okay so maybe those are correlated um maybe there maybe there's causation maybe there's correlation but at least like i can see that they and i could then try to measure that um but i think that looking at them on a daily basis i think that then i i get hysterical about it where does your curiosity come from that's a great question i actually really wish i knew this is something i've been thinking about massively i think that i am still looking for the book about how to become curious um Because I think that I think that there are a lot of people in the world that have discussed creativity the last 10 years. There's like 10 different books about creativity and topics like that. And I think that's a very interesting topic. And it's a very it's a very debated topic. It's like creativity doesn't mean really anything for some people and for other people it means utter genius. And some people means that you can draw and some people it just means you can think laterally and so many definitions. But there's been quite a lot of good writing about that topic. But I think that there's been very little writing about ambition and about um, curiosity. And I find ambition and curiosity being two very interesting drivers. I feel for a certain group of people, I think the most important thing for them is being, it's like they should be 70% ambitious and 20% curious. And I think certain people should be 80% curious and 20% uh, ambitious. Um, I mean, more ambitious than average. And I think that that's something I wonder a lot. Like I, if I would choose, I wish my kids were more, I mean, I, I would want them to be curious. I think ambitious for me isn't as important, but I think curious is very important. But it's, I have actually tried to figure it out. I've read some books, and but there's nothing written about it. I have no clue why I'm curious. Do you think uh, we're born the way we are? Can you learn to be curious or have more ambition? Um, I, on the nature-nurture for me, I think is I think there's a mix. I think there are certain things which obviously are in our in our genes and DNA, and it's... I mean, it's almost impossible to kind of say differently, but I think that there, there are certain things which are so, I mean, they, I can see how it affected me massively that I'm the fourth child. So, uh, I mean, I have three older brothers. They're, uh, they're so much older than I am. They're 
10, 9, 8 year olds older than I am. So, um, I mean, that of course changes massively how I was brought up. I was brought up with, you know, jokingly five, five parents. Uh, so I think that that of course changed a lot how I behave. And I think that, um, I think that was such a massive part of my upbringing. Another part of my upbringing is the fact that my parents, having three older brothers, my parents were rather lax about uh, just how I did stuff. Um, you know, because I was the fourth child. I mean, they were just like, can, you know, can I climb up a tree and jump it down and shoot with a BB gun? I think they were just like, why are you asking? And I think that <laughs> I can definitely see that if if you're the oldest child, like your parents are going to be checking everything you do and worrying a lot. Is this normal? Is this weight curve normal? Is like uh, one of the eyes is not the same color as the other eyes. That's deadly. And, you know, like that. And I think that when you have like, when you have multiple children after a while, you just look at them and you're like, probably fine. So I think that def- affects the children quite a lot. So I think that it, it, I can definitely see it with people who are the oldest child. I think that they're they're more kind of grown up in a sense. They kind of behave more responsibly, but they also worry quite a lot more. And I think the reason is because they were, when they were young, they were exposed to their parents' worries. They kind of, you know, if they scratched their knee, the parents like, uh, disinfected it and looked a lot at it and you know talked to them about what happened and could they help them if you're the third child and then have a scratched knee your parents look at it and it's like okay whatever and i think that sort of teaches you when you're the third or in my case the fourth child that yeah it's probably gonna be fine and i think that i think affects me i think that affected me massively because i can really see how i grew up in this kind of strange greenhouse environment because i'm the fourth child and such a big difference in age in one sense, I am the blend of a last child and the first child because I was the, I mean, I'm obviously the fourth. So my parents were rather relaxed about everything I did, but also because that I, there's such a big age, age difference. My parents were kind of, I mean, for them, um, they were kind of, uh, I mean, they had kind of the, the thing you have when you have a new child. I think that even if there was their fourth child, it's not that they're different parents, but I think they were much more like they had decided to get a third, a fourth child after a very long time. And I think that then they kind of have the things you have about a first child, same things that you find it's extremely cute and you have the time to spend with them because there was no competition on time between me and my brothers in that sense, because my, my brother's problems were, you know, high school problems and my problems were like, you know, you're a kind of five-year-old walking around and being cute. So I think that I got all the kind of the love things as a child of getting all the attention but I didn't get any of the, oh, no, he hurt his knee. You have to watch out. So I think I got this strange combo of all the benefits of being the oldest child of the, the love and the attention, but none of the negatives as in um, overattention and the worry and stuff like that. And I think that affected me massively. And if I look at my brothers, I mean, I have three brothers, so I can see that we, of course, have rather similar DNA. I see certain things that are very similar among us. Um, I think that we have... We're rather analytical and we're rather risk-taking as people. And I think we're also rather ambitious. And I think that, and I think, and we're we're rather curious, all of us. But I think that I see the differences between us of how we look at, how we look at risk, uh, what kind of risk we're fine with. And if we worry, do we try to optimize for maximum outcome or do we try to optimize for minimal downside, so to say? And that's very different among us. And and how aware are we of risks versus how much do we calculate the risks? And that is very different among us. 
And I think that's, I see bigger similarities between other like if I compare myself as the youngest sibling to another family's younger sibling, or, you know, my oldest brother with someone other's oldest brother, I see more similarities in certain aspects. And then, of course, I find some similarities stronger intra-family. Um, I mean, we have three cousins that are similar ages that my three brothers are, and their family is very different than my family. But you can definitely see the same, different as in interests, I mean, but you can definitely see the same thing about the oldest versus the oldest, the youngest versus the youngest in that family. And But, you see, but then you see, of course, that their family is much more skewed towards arts and creativity whereas my family was is much more skewed towards stem and and like analytics and i think it's very interesting to see that that some are intra-family and i think some are just quote-unquote hierarchical um and then of course they're just random stuff that you know if your if your parents separated when you were young or if your parents traveled a lot or or, or moved like moved around different countries i think that affects you massively you've been doing quite a many angel investments um Looking back at your portfolio and, and data as you, as you, as you love it, uh, has your investment criteria changed when you had your first one and when you had your last one now? What are the attributes? Absolutely. I think that they're, they've changed. I think they've changed in many aspects. I think one is I think that, I mean, first of all, I think that I've had themes over the years, which I've kind of been into. And if they have any kind of, I've had themes, which is, for example, local startups that I wanted to support the local ecosystem. I had a theme when I wanted to mostly work with female founders. I had a theme when I uh, wanted to work with things that I was very, very curious about, that the topic in it by itself, it was anything from mental health to gut biome to whatever, whereas like a topic I was into at the moment. Um and then I think that then purpose is like, you know, what, how important the topic was for the world is something that I think has, has sort of definitely changed. And then a complete, so those are all properties of the startup, so to say. But then I think there's another thing that's changed. And I think that as you, as you meet more companies, I think you start to index over a broader and broader range, right? Like if you meet, if you meet five companies, you can invest in the best, then to be frank, that's probably not the best startup you should invest in. Uh, but if you've met hundreds of startups, then of course, when you invest in the best, that's of course much more probable to be a very good startup. So I think that's of course changed over the years. That in the beginning, I of course hadn't met that many startups, and because I, in the beginning I worked mostly because I wanted to support the local ecosystem. Then you get a Venn diagram of rather few companies that there were walking distance from where I were, and because I'm not in San Francisco, and because I was not into a certain topic then, then of course I got a distribution that was return-wise, not the best distribution as in financial return. I think as in relationship return and me building friends and uh, really enjoying working with the local community, of course, was an amazing return. And then when I started broadening my distribution and work more globally, uh, then I got a lot of of different random startups. And then I started to figure out which ones are the ones I want to work with. And then, of course, I found, I started picking... um, marbles out of different urns so to say and when you start picking marbles out of different urns i felt that i learned a lot by doing that and i think that's something i would encourage anybody to do i think that whether you're buying an apartment or you're dating to meet somebody or you're reading books or you're investing in startups i think a very common problem is that if you only buy books that are written in your local tongue and language um, and are from uh, books where the first three pages makes you exciting excited um then i think that you're going to pick from one distribution 
And I think that if you start by saying, okay, I want to pick from another distribution now, it, you're going to find very different things. So I do very similar about books. I had a period when I only tried to read or mostly tried to read uh, science fiction books that were about culture changes. And majority of them were written by female authors. And the majority of them were written the last five years. And of course, that broadened my horizons quite massively about the sort of 21st century science fiction, which I actually hadn't read that much about. I had read quite a lot in the 20th century science fiction, but not that lot, lot in the new science fiction, so to say. And I think that has been really enjoyable to try to pick out of other urns, so to say. You started to do a podcast about books. What was the reason behind that? Yeah, that actually came from the fact when I started started when I was when I started reading this uh, 21st century science fiction about culture change. When I started reading those, I kind of felt that I had this view previously that most science fiction books are concept books that they try a concept like very much like Isaac Asimov is. They are asking themselves, what if the world is run by robots and the world the robots have these three rules? Then hmm, what happens? So like rather philosophical ideas. Um, and when I find when I started reading these books, I found that they were super interesting because they asked much more questions about hierarchy, status, and those questions that were very different, I think, uh, and and honestly less atomic and more intrapersonal. I think that it was less about like how how great is a laser sword and more about what happens when we don't care about gender which i think is like very different questions and then i started looking at these books and i started realizing that when you're a science fiction author and you write conceptual books that are more about bigger concepts not about laser swords but about you know democracy um uh, then i think you have to construct and design a very big broad world and then you build this whole big world so think about like you're building this big landscape and then now you're taking a torchlight and you're walking the reader through a path in that so like you're following the, uh, the you know the hero or heroess through this landscape and the, the headache for you as an author is that you're shining the torchlight through a very small part of course of the whole world you designed because you had thought about like how does money work is tourism still a thing or which countries do exist And the start, thing I started thinking about is like, think if you're a science fiction author, how much time you invested in designing this new world? And we as readers only get to glimpse uh, small snapshots of it. And you as the author only gets to show uh, snapshots of it. So then I asked myself, wouldn't it be interesting to talk to these authors about the world they built and not the story? I don't care about the characters. I don't care about the story because those I can just pick up the book and read, right? I want to understand social status, gender, hierarchies, economics in their world. And that was a very, very interesting mission. And I really enjoyed talking to many of these authors. Some of them had clearly not really thought about it. Um, some of them were writing more or less fantasy biographies about themselves in their dream world. Um, and some of them had these very, very intricate worlds that they had designed that asked very, very big and broad questions. And I think that it was very interesting, both, of course, to hear the writing process, which was actually part of why I also wanted to talk to them. I was thinking about, I wasn't thinking about writing a book, but I was thinking about how is it to write a book, so to say. So I was more curious about how, how do these people do it? And the other thing, of course, like I just wanted to talk to them is like, what did you actually think about in this world? What What's happening? And some of them were just extraordinary. I, I mean, Ada Palmer's books, uh, the Terra Ignotia uh, series, was just a, such an I mean, I think I've never read a book, I think, that asked those extraordinarily big anthropological questions about how the world could be without nation states and without gender or nuclear families. And it's very hard to imagine that world. 
But if you read the book, the nice thing about fiction books is that you get teleported into the to a person. You become a person for you know between two hundred and eight hundred pages. That can be hours and hours. And being that person for multiple hours, that is much more salient experience than I think than reading a three paragraph thing about what if we don't have nation states. You know, when you read like a, what could Bitcoin do for currencies across the world? Yeah, that piques my mind. But if you read a book when somebody actually did that and it feels really real and you're the you're the I in that book, then you start realizing what does that mean not for how currencies are, but what does it mean for trust? What does it mean for tax? What does it mean for social welfare? And I think that I really liked. So I started the, the podcast because I just wanted to talk to these people. And I was very, very, very pleased how happy they were to talk to me about it. And I think it was because of this pent up thing that... They had thought so much about the world, but hadn't been able to communicate it to anybody. Did you find out that uh, some of these authors who were really thinking a long time, doing extensive research, that they have like uh, worlds that you could, you know, they can come with a lot of books? Uh, is there sort of a correlation how much work you put into the research and, and thinking and creating the world uh, before you write it, or you know, it's just like you know, there's there's a different style for everyone. That, that, it was very much the latter, and that was the absurd part of it. How certain authors, certain authors' concept had come by. I mean, Ada Palmer. I mean, she's an historian. She has she studied um, medieval Japan, and then took a lot of the things that she thought about medieval Japan, and then brought it to today, and then took a lot of the things that we are talking about, stuff like gender, nuclear families, and nation states. But then she like medieval Japan had some of these concepts, but of course not completely. And then she just, you know, dotted the line out to the future and then wrote the book. So I think she had thought so much about the bo- a book. I think that that was the thing. It felt Shakespearean to the language level, which made them very kind of hard to read sometimes, but also very fascinating that her ideas are so deep. And if you then take, for example, Anne Leckie, which I think is an amazing author and one of my favorite science fiction authors, her whole, one of her concepts actually came by mistake. She wrote the book and then sent it to, sent it to her editor and didn't, and forgot to change a thing. And then her editor commented on it in a very strange way. And then Ada felt, no, 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 sorry. And Lecky felt, no, no, that was not a mistake. Like she just changed her mind. It's not a mistake. Like I'm going to stick to this thing. And that was, you know, very strange. And then you have Dennis E. Taylor who wrote the Bobby Bear series who very much like, I think that he doesn't think about it that much. And I think that was very, very fascinating how he was just writing a book and essentially just coming up with things he like, thought about in the moment. And that's, of course, other very, like, very fascinating. And then you have, uh, for example, other extremists, Hanu Rayaniemi. And Hanu is very much thinking along the most extreme kind of trends and topping in San Francisco about, you know, quantum computing and mind uploading. And then he's taking these concepts that people talk a lot about at dinners and cool ideas. And then he sort of just asks, okay, what if I implement these in a book? So he com- came from a fourth angle, and I think that's I think that's very fascinating how these books are written. And I think that's also the difference I think I find so fascinating about science fiction. It's science fiction allows people to imagine new worlds. And I think that I felt that new science fiction do that in a way that, or 21st century science fiction do that in a way that 20th century science fiction actually didn't do at all. Um, and I still am sort of, I, there are a couple of fantasy writers that are doing this now. But I think it's rather rare in fantasy. Fantasy tends to be more archetypical characters and more kind of, um, it's more kind of, you know what you're going to get feeling. 
you start reading the book and you're like, oh, so that's the, you know, the little cunning one. Oh, so that's the young boy that's going to be the, this is going to be the, uh, you know, the story about him growing up and becoming a wise person or a powerful person. Oh, that's the strong, stupid one. And it's a bit archetypical. And I think that some of these books have been able to weave in absolutely amazing uh, other side stories or concepts, but it's like, I find them to be much more shallow usually on, on uh, perspective, so to say, they tend to not give like new ways of thinking. Um, so I think that, and I think that a lot of, of course, historical fiction are interesting because that that's a whole other problem. How do you teleport somebody back into, you know, uh, millennial, you know, 1000 um, years ago in England? I don't know if you read Ken Follett's books, Pillars of Earth, which is about constructions of cathedrals. And that's, of course, crazy because he had to do crazy amounts of research of figuring out how do people build cathedrals. And, of course, he couldn't make stuff up because, I mean, this is, you know, people build cathedrals in a certain way. So I think it's it's very interesting to see how all these authors fight with these questions. One of your investment themes has been climate change and its impact on the world and our societies. Can you elaborate a bit your thinking and findings on the matter? Yes, I think climate investment in general. I think that climate, I feel like... Climate is it's very kind of central to many things. And I think a lot of people stare at um, the temperature increase, for example. And I think that if you take one level up and ask us, like, so let's say that we get 2 to 4% degree Celsius increase on the planet. I think the effects of that are not only that it's going to be easier to grow grapes in Finland. I mean, there are other things that are going to change, right? And I think that one of the things people look at then is, oh, so... Um, sea level rise. Okay, so then people immediately start to Google where their house is and how close it's to the sea and what happens if the sea level rises one meter, three feet, and then it's oh, we're safe. Uh, and I think that that's like, they were looking at this first order effects. And I think we started looking at the second order effects instead is that you see that when the sea level rises, what happens with increased storms, because one of the headaches with uh, increased temperature is increased storms. Storms are created by difference in temperatures. So then suddenly you have a lot of water that's going to be slushing up into land when you have a strong wind. Which, if again, if you live in you know most of the Nordics, yeah, sure, there's going to be some wind and some you know your basements was going to have a problem, but hey, that's just an insurance cost. But if you live in Vietnam or Bangladesh, that means that you're going to get salt water in your rice paddies. If you get salt water in your rice paddies, you lost you you lose your harvest. It also means you're going to have a lot of water around. A lot of water is going to lead to a lot of parasites, which leads to a lot of diseases. So suddenly you have a land where you have not that much food and act a lot of diseases, that creates a lot of civil unrest. Civil unrest means both migration and the risk of strong men, quote unquote, taking power, which leads to war. And that's the problem, I think, with climate. A lot of people look at it and they ask themselves, why should I care? I think a slightly increased temperature would be fine. But they don't realize that it doesn't stop with a couple of degrees increase in temperature. It means that we're going to have civil unrest, we're going to have famine, we're going to have war, and one of the headaches with these things also is that let's say you imagine a world where there's going to be like there's going to be more war, more civil, like even if you put it to war, war is such a complicated political term because what is actually a war? Um, uh, like there, there is actually super interesting questions about how to declare war, which I think is very fascinating. It's like what's the actual reason to declare war, which has a term of by itself, which is interesting. I, when I was a kid, I just thought, like, when you have war, you just say, uh, you know, I'll attack you, right? But there's causes believe, and causes believe is, like, the reason to make war. And it's very pretty well defined that you can't just say we're going to war. You have to have a causes believe. And I think that's the, and it's fascinating by itself. But then the degree underneath, when you just have civil unrest, when you have civil unrest, that, of course, causes problems. Let's imagine, just, just, like, 
take this fictional world right now, where let's say you have a country where a lot of people live in the countryside, some of the cities, and, and it's a pretty hot country, and you have an increased temperature, and and you have a bad year, a bad crop. So a lot of people are going to lose their harvest. So they're, what they're going to do then, of course, they're going to move into the city. when Because if they live in the countryside and rural, they, they probably live off the land more. So they move into the city. We have a massive influx of people into the cities, like a massive influx. And you also have a loss of food. What happens is you've got a lot of civil unrest. Let's imagine this is a rather religious country. So they're all, already an infrastructure for strong leadership. It's pretty easy to pick up a thread and say, well... We believe this is happening and those are the enemies and those are the good ones. That's slightly more complicated to do in a very secular country, but it's very easy to do in a highly, it doesn't need to be a religious country, like just like a, a country that has a strong ism, anything from capitalism to to uh, like an, a religion, of course. So then like, let's say you have that. And that when you suddenly have Syria with a lot of famine and you have Shia and Sunni Muslims, and then they say, this is you part of this, or uh, uh, is the other fraction's fault? Part of it is the is United States of America's fault. Bam, you have Dech, you have ISIS. And that, of course, creates something where most people care about. Most people care about the war in the Gulf states means, you know, un- like unpredictable oil prices. It means floods of refugees to the rest of Europe. And that, of course, changed the local economies with when you have an influx of refugees, it means that states are closing. When states are closing, even if like when Hungary says we're going to close our state, it's close our border, that of course means that other countries in Europe start to say that Hungary might be doing the wrong thing. That means that trade in- decreases with Hungary, and like you see this ripple effect that just ripple, ripple upwards to a to essentially a state of distrust when people are isolated, when people just believe that there's a clear enemy, and that is, I think, a world that nobody wants to live. The only people who want to live in an, in a world where there's a clear the us and them are the people who are the leaders of us or the leaders of them. The people who are them or who are us, they don't enjoy it at all. Like nobody enjoys like fighting someone else. Everybody enjoys, like most people at least enjoy peace. The only, I think, the thing people enjoy about having a them is that the, you have a stronger sense of purpose. So I think that the world we live in today, 2020, before COVID, is that we had a world where there were so many thems. I mean, US was... You know, pointing fingers at Muslims. U.S. was pointing fingers at China, partly, and I think that you had this really, really scary world. And then on top of that, you suddenly have a pandemic, and then certain like part of that pandemic has created this flourishing of an us that you see scientists collaborating in the world, which is amazing. But then you've also had a very much strengthened them. You have countries look at other countries and saying, "Why are you, you know, closing your schools, opening schools? What are you doing?" But also, where did this virus origin from? Is it like a Kung flu? Is it, you know, the China virus? Is it a US lab? And I think it's like, it creates so much unrest. And that unrest is so dangerous for the stability of the world. I think that humanity is just probabilistically, like we have high risk of like having complete extinction of our species or like a heavy reduction from anything from nuclear war to asteroid impacts to irreversible rampant climate change with feedback loops. And we have to realize that we have to work together to stop these massive things. And the problem is like, if we have bickering about small things, we're like kids in the kindergarten fighting about who's, who's got the soccer ball. And that means that we're all going to die. So I think it's so horrible to see that we have a world where we're not collaborating about the big topics. And I am very happy to see that, at least on this, in the science world, a lot of the scientists, they are trying, trying heavily to collaborate around COVID-19 and figuring out uh, you know, how, how to make sure that uh, 
uh, things aren't going the wrong way. What are the problems worth solving? I think that there. Are, I mean, that's a good question. I think that there. Are, I think. I mean, yeah. I think. Yeah. I think all problems are worth solving, more or less. I think that if you feel that you wish there was a way for you to watch YouTube with friends, I mean, yeah, that's like go solve it, right? See, so you're scratching somebody's itch. Somebody's frustrated about this. But I think the things I am really afraid about, about, and the things I'm thinking a lot about, are the systemic problems that create the kind of instabilities that make it hard for us to collaborate. So I think that when people say that extinction uh, risks, X risks are really important. I agree, of course, like, but that is kind of like saying we should stop death. I think that it's like, it's very hard to stop death. Uh, but what can be done is instead stopping the issues of what are the effects of aging. So I think when people say that we're working on extinction risks, sure, but let's instead look at the uh, reasons that we could get extinctions or extinction. Um, and those three systemic for me that I'm really afraid about is climate change, as we talked about. I think climate change has massive effect that it's very, very dangerous. Another one I think is, which I'm really worried about is inequality. And I'm not saying just inequality as in like gender inequality, which is a very popular topic in the West. But I think I'm also really afraid about like income inequality. Uh, I mean, north of the globe, south of the globe inequality. There are lots of inequalities that makes the world pretty unstable. And I think that I'm not after a world where everybody is perfectly equal because I don't believe that to be a very good system. But I want a world where we have a both a veil of ignorance when laws are, and things are designed not with a certain target group in mind to make their already good life better, but a world where everybody imagines themselves in the worst position and think about what we want to do then. But I think the other thing, I think inequality is also, it creates a lot of instability, which is very dangerous. So for me, inequality is really super important problem. And it's a very hard problem because I think that it you get in this kind of, and I mean, the American perspective, left wing, right wing, when you can ask yourself is, do you want to help people who actually are ambi- unambitious and lazy, which is, you know, more of the rights view to inequality. Uh, and I think the, the, I think that that is a, I think that's a pretty, of course, I mean, that's, you know, of course that can happen, right? But the way I view government's role is government's role is to distribute luck or make, uh, like make sure that luck isn't even unevenly distributed. So I think that if you're born in a country where it's harder to get an education, or if you're born in a, in a body with too much melatonin or wrong gender or something else, I mean, wrong, I mean, not, not of course, objectively wrong, but wrong is that you're playing life at a harder level then I think that that is something the state should think about. Like, how do you make sure, or like, you know, you're born in a family which is abusive or you're born with a physical or mental handicap. You're born with just like, essentially what I, the way I view it with a computer game analogy, when you start the game of life, you, you know, you don't get to select your level, but somebody selects the level. And sometimes you play it on, you know, basic and sometimes you play it on, immortal and sometimes you sadly put the game at deity and now you're playing super super hard and that is what the life lottery is that if you're you know if you're born as a as a black woman in the u.s which i think that some parts of the lottery you're born in a really great country but you're born in a country where some people will look down on you and that is of course making it much harder than being born a, a white man in that country and i think that's part of the state so how do we make sure that we're not distributed distributing luck or unluck in a world which is very, 
it's very randomly distributed and I, I don't like that at all. So inequality, I think is a very important topic to look into. Um, then I think that the third one for me, uh, which I find also very important is Infowars and truth. I think it's really scary. And I think you see it so strongly now in a world of COVID where I really hate when you can't trust information. I really hate that. Like when you can weaponize information or turn truths correlated to partisanship, I really hate that. I really hate when, I really hate it when you listen to a debate, an American debate, and people start by saying, I'm a Republican, so I'm a bit skeptical to climate change. I have no problem, honestly, with people being skeptical with climate change in and by itself. I have a problem when people choose their opinions depending uh, on, you know, the color of their party, because I think that's the wrong way. I think it's okay to choose the, your party or whatever affiliation dependent on your beliefs. But it's very, very strange to do it differently. Because I think that if you believe in something, of course, then you can say like, oh, so maybe I should hang around with these people either because they think differently and I'm going to learn or because they can think similar that me and we have power numbers. But I think it's such a stupid thing to do to say that, you know, I have these attributes, so therefore my beliefs are X. And I think it's... I think it's because I am a, I am such a big believer in in learning and truth, and and I think that just that feels that 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 doesn't drive the world forward. It's like if you're if you're looking for, you know, if you're looking for groupthink, that's another thing. But groupthink is a transient thing. Like if you live. 21st century and you're kind of hanging out with your people and you're having a great time and you're believing a thing because of that for people in 20 you know in the 22nd century or 23rd century you didn't progress humanity at all you actually brought it maybe backwards or made it more unstable but if we all try to think about how we bring knowledge forward and try to make a better infrastructure for the whole planet then we're sort of thinking about guardian the future of humanity and it's so easy to just shrug at that thing, but we have to remember that there are more people going to be born in in the future than ever has been born, and there are of course more many people going to be born and living than are alive today. And the people in the future they have absolutely no vote, but everybody today we have a vote, and we're not voting thinking about people in the future. I mean, climate change is one of those topics where if you're like, if you're like a fifty year old person today, it's very very unlikely that you're going to. Uh, suffer from the really bad effects of climate change. But I'm telling you, there's going to be millions and millions and millions people in the future that's going to suffer greatly. And you're now discounting their votes to zero. And that is very strange. Because why would you discount? It's like if you had Adam and Eve, and you know, and I don't think there was an Adam and Eve, but if you conceptually see Adam and Eve, and Adam you know, shot himself in the head, then there wouldn't be a future. There wouldn't be people at all. So I think it's just such an extremely stupid thing to do, to believe that you, the person on the planet now, that you're so important that you have an infinitely more higher right than everybody who ever will be born. So I think that for me, it's like I'm very much a system builder. And I think if we address climate change, inequality, and info wars, I think we're going to build a more a better system together that's going to be able to solve whatever problem we need to solve May that be how we watch YouTube together or something way more important? You've been talking about opportunity liquidity. What does that mean? Yeah, so I think that 
that question came up because people started talking about if they go to university, which I think is a very popular topic to talk about. Now, I think it's been around for since MOOCs came around. It's been like, I don't know, what, 10, 15 years where people started saying education. Is education worth it? Like you can just go online and learn anything online. So why would you ever go to school? Um, and I think that the thing I started thinking about is like, what is the purpose of of tying yourself to the mast and forcing yourself to do something for five years? And I think that that, is, that has benefits. But it's also a disadvantage. So now I'm starting thinking: what are the th- what are the things you're weighing against each other? And I think I view education or any any kind of focused learning, for that sake, is that there are three parameters. It's like a three pointed triangle where the three corners have different values. So the one corner is credibility. Like if you just graduated from Harvard, yeah, you have amazing credibility, almost independently of subject or grades or anything. You hey, you survived Harvard, right? And the other one is, of course, knowledge. Like you actually know stuff. And that has no, not that much to do with, with which university you went to. Of course, that it has some some like some strong correlations, but it very much depends on how you behaved and how you spent your time at university, of course. But then the other one is if you tie yourself to the mast and spend your time, then you cannot do anything else. So that means you're, if you look at that triangle, now you can put a dot in that triangle and ask yourself where you are. And the year before you join university, when you're in college or something, you now have the opportunity to go to university for, let's say, four years, which means you have no opportunity to do anything else. I mean, you can do some things, right? But but you're going to lower the, your possible palette quite a lot for four years. So that means your opportunity liquidity goes down gradually. But your credibility is going to go up quite a lot because after university, you have graduated from university. And your knowledge, of course, has decreased, increased quite a lot because, I mean, you have hopefully learned something at the university. Whereas if you don't go to university, but instead you know, travel the world and meet a lot of new people, then your opportunity liquidity is extremely high. You have the opportunity to do anything at any moment. Like you can meet somebody and decide that you're going to live in Nepal. And then when you're in Nepal, you can decide in a whim to go to Thailand and become a monk, which of course is an extraordinary opportunity liquidity, but it might decrease your your learnings, but it, and it absolutely decrease your uh, credibility. I mean, I wouldn't say it decreases your credibility absolutely decrease your capability. I would say that if you're going for the, if you want to minimize the risk, if you want to, if you optimize for downside, going to university is a really good option. Because if you go to university, there's a very low risk that you're going to have a horrible credibility that you haven't, you've graduated, right? And it's probably like gives you a pretty good learning, but it costs you four years then of opportunity liquidity. But if you instead travel the world and meet people and, and hang out with Dalai Lama, you you're putting your credibility at risk a lot uh, and you're putting your learnings at risk as well and but of course you you gain that by having higher opportunity liquidity which means that you now much be a much stronger sovereign individual individual you now have to think so much more about every day and your choices you have to have a much higher discipline and you have to really have a good decision system if to go to nepal or not or if to join this cloister in in, in uh, thailand and I think that that is a challenge that most people really don't understand how hard it is. Because I think we're brought up not having that many options, actually. And we, be, I mean, we live in an age where, well, not now, not 2020 May, but almost before that, we live in an age when we can do almost anything we want with our lives. There are many limits, of course, but you, I mean, look 100 years back or even more, then it's like you have very, very few options. If you were the son of the cobbler, you were the son of the cobbler, that's it. 
but but like look now you can you can really change your life but i think that that's a very hard thing to do and i think that if you ask anybody who's 19 now what are you going to do with your life i think that people either just put on uh, they just say like i don't know i'm I, i'm going to university i'm going to study computer science why uh because my oldest brother did so okay so like you're not thinking about it or you're challenging yourself constantly and trying to pick the best options and that hurts that hurts because now you're challenging your identity you're asking yourself who you are are you the person who's going to be a doctor? Are you the person that volunteers with Doctors Without Borders? Are you the person that stays with your childhood girlfriend or boyfriend that you grew up with? And those are so horrible challenges. So sometimes outsourcing that to another institution, saying, oh, I'm going to Stanford, so I'm going to live somewhere around there and I'm going to hang out with them, that just makes life so much more practical and easier for a couple of years. So I think that's something I think that generally we should think about is that if you start a job, uh, join a company, well, your opportunity to liquidity goes down and you should just realize that you're doing that. What makes you happy? Um, I think a couple of things, but I think that one thing that makes me really happy is is I really, really enjoy learning. I think that, and it's such a, I've thought about that sentence, like I enjoy learning because it's complicated because I, I don't but know. You love the learning process. Yeah, I don't know why. I, now, I don't know why, actually. I think it's like when I start to analyze that, I find it so complicated. I, I don't know what I enjoy about it. Because I think as everybody else, I mean, when you're sitting there scratching your head, not understanding the math problem or reading a book in the middle of the night and almost falling asleep because it's too hard, of course I don't enjoy it. I mean, uh, I'm not I'm not a monster. But I think that there's something about, I think I love the feeling of, I think I'm, yeah, I think this, I mean, this, I, this is a post-talk justification and construction, but I think that because I was brought up as the fourth child, and I mean, I'm getting back to that, and my brothers are so much older than I am, I was so used to as a kid not understanding what was happening around me. I mean, you're sitting around the kitchen table and somebody's talking about, you know, you know, college math or whatever. I mean, of course, I mean, if you're, if you're eight years old or something, of course you're not following. I mean, there's no way I can follow, Right. And I somehow enjoy just picking up parts and trying to construct my image of what they were saying and build the world inside my head. Oh, I think I'm understanding it now. Oh, may- no, I'm not. Oh, maybe I'm following it now. And then trying it out and saying, is this true? And they were like, what are you- stop, please be quiet. We're talking. And oh, But it's actually not that bad. And I was like, wow, okay, interesting. I'm, I'm sort of building, I think it was more like, it's like building a, p- a puzzle or like a Lego, big Lego construction without a drawing without instruction and just trying to understand how it fits i think there was just something it's like or like knitting without a pattern it's there's something beautiful about just trying to construct something and i think that's like what i enjoy about learning if there's something about that which also means that i don't enjoy learning you know 50 word 50 new french words because i'm not constructing a lego model I'm just like pointing at Lego model saying, that's red, that's blue, that's green, that has eight dots, that has two dots. And that for me is like tabular knowledge. And like, I don't enjoy that at all. I I, I hated learning like, you know, the kings of Sweden back to the, you know, umpteenth century. I hated that because I just felt like I can't construct a model about this in my brain. But I always, always loved like building these strange four-dimensional puzzle and trying to understand it. And that, that process I so much love. Um, and that can be really anything. And but I do enjoy when I'm designing something in my head, this you know, ball of yarn 
that I don't understand, when that becomes a platform upon which I can stand. So if I understand, for example, the how Henry II uh, in England ra- reasoned, I'm not going to be able to use that for much. Like it's going to be more enjoyable reading in the next book, might maybe. But it's so in- interesting to just understand, you know, how chlorophyll works or something. Because that is something I feel that I can I can sort of stand upon that shoulder of giants later and just go, oh wow, I think I understand the next thing now, and then construct an even bigger four dimensional puzzle that contains this you know proto puzzle inside it, which is this small piece that I'm standing upon. So I don't really know why I enjoy that, but I think it's partly because I think that I I was given that opportunity to build these four dimensional puzzles in my head when I was a kid, and I just you know, liked it. Uh, and I, I, the strange thing is I don't necessarily like knowing these things. Um, one of the more common sentences I said in college, I think, was that I had an idea and I realized, oh, I have a really cool idea. And I didn't want to say I have an idea or I've thought about this because that, you know, that made me sound like I was something. I didn't like that at all. So I always said stuff like, oh, I've read somewhere or something like that. And because then I kind of outsourced the, the, you know, the validity of the idea and not because I was afraid about being wrong, more that I was actually afraid about people saying, wow, okay, are you trying to pretend you're a genius? Uh, instead, just saying, I've read this somewhere. And, and, and then people are like, oh, I think, oh, that's a really good idea. And it also because, because I think because I was brought up with your older siblings, it also meant that when I was in college uh, or even younger, I mostly my friends were slightly older than I were. So that meant, of course, that I was always on my toes trying to kind of, you know, keep the pace, which meant often I had to kind of come up with things that even if you, if you can't run as fast or throw as far, you have to kind of add other values. And I think that I've always been that person. And I think that I really enjoyed trying to just stay alive uh, in that sense. So I think that I really enjoyed that. And I think nowadays there are many things, other things I enjoy. I think that that love of learning and building these four-dimensional puzzles, I think was a very, it's a very egoistic thing because I mean, it's like I'm knitting a thing inside my head and no one else no one else benefits from it. I think nowadays I just enjoy massively um, helping people to figure out what they don't want to do with their lives. But it's also super frustrating because I always, I always find that I shouldn't do this because it is, I mean, it takes a lot of time. Uh, it takes massive amounts of my time. And I absolutely don't want an influx of people who ask me if I want to be their mentor or coach or anything else. I, I I don't want that at all. There's so many other things I want to do in my life. But the thing is, when I do, when I do it with friends or people I worked with, I just get this immense joy. I just I just like it so much. I talked to a previous colleague just this week and reasoned with her about what she's going to do with her life a bit. And she, at the end of it, said, oh, thank you very much. This has been amazing. And I just felt like I had so like, thank you. I mean, I, I really enjoy this. And it was like, no, no. And I was like, no, but serious, listen to me. I really enjoy this. Like, I mean, I, I mean, I really, 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 really think this is really enjoyable. Um, and I don't know. I think that it's, that is something I really enjoy. And I think it's the delight of seeing other people grow somehow and just seeing them challenged enough. Um, and then, I mean, I have three kids. I really, really enjoy seeing my kids um, being happy about something or learning something. I think it's such a fascinating thing just to see um, them crack something. And I think it's some, of course, biological thing in me, of course, enjoys the fact that they're my kids. Some, you know, DNA in me says, hey, preserve your genes. But I think a big part of me is just, I just joy the innocence of children 
and seeing them grow, whether they're my children or someone other's child, I just think it's so amazing that you have these things that are created into the world and they, they're like sponges and they learn everything and they can become anything. They're tabula rasas in many aspects, of course, not genetically and of course not where they're brought up, but they're, they have so many opportunities. And I think that's so fascinating. I am very, very, very bad at saying no to opportunities. I think that's one of my biggest weaknesses, just being able to say, no, I'm not going to go skiing in Chamonix with this amazing troop of people and get to know them. That was the thing I decided, I think it was two years ago, that I would decline 10 amazing opportunities every year. And it hurt so much, the first one, which was a ski trip to Chamonix with amazing people. And I was like, no, I'm not going to come. And they asked why. And I said, like, I have said that I'm going to decline 10 amazing opportunities. And it's to January the 2nd. And this is like so easy to, you know, take one off. And then I'm, I feel already I'm on the way. And they were like, that was the strangest reason I've ever heard not to join this trip. And I was like, yeah, yeah, but, you know, someone's going to be the first, right? So that was a real joy of missing out. Yeah, I think it was not so much. I think, of course, the thing is, it was... It was, of course, I mean, I mean, mentioning it now, it's two years later, right? So there's part of me that said, maybe I should have gone to that trip. But I think that every time you, like, you do something, it's something else you don't do. And I think that it's so hard for me, at least, to remember how much I love, like, reading an amazing book of fiction with a glass of wine, like, at 11 p.m. in the evening, and just like sitting there and nothing else is happening because your phone is blinking, your computer is saying these TV series, somebody's saying, should we do this? I mean, it's so easy to jump on this train and like, you know, go to Chamonix and believe that I could, there's an escapism to kind of finding luck and joy somewhere else. And I think that most of us live, most of us live in believing that we should try to spend our time optimizing the next moment the problem is that when you're only spending your time optimizing their next moment, you're never living in the moment when you get there. Because when you're living in that moment, you're thinking about how to optimize the next moment. And I think this is, I would say that I absolutely have not mastered this because I am as lousy as anyone else in the world at this. I am very far from a perfect Buddhist monk or a, a mindfulness Zen master. But I think that I just try to remind, remind myself sometimes. It's like when I go to that trip in Chamonix, Either I'm going to sit there and feel, shit, this is it, right? Like, this is what I'm doing. This is like, this is as good as it gets. Or I'm going to sit and think, oh, shit, that's that super amazing person. That's super interesting. I got to figure out a like, way to talk to her about this topic because she's so great at that. And I'm just going to try to be super anxious about like getting the opportunity to talk to her about it. And when I get the opportunity to talk about it, I'm going to be like, you know, the teenage guy who's dating the first time I'm going to be stuttering. And I'm like, Oh shit, I made a fool out of myself. I should just stop speaking now as quickly as possible. And then I have asked my questions. She's answered and I'm going to run away as quickly as possible because I don't want to have the stupid question. Secondly, whereas the times when I have by mistake been stuck with that person on a flight or on a train or someone else, we've had an amazing time because we, it wasn't designed. I mean, I was stuck one time. What was that? 99 or something. I was in New York at Christmas. I've separated from my then girlfriend. Um, and separated sounds for heavy. I mean, you're, <laughs> we weren't married. Uh, but like we, we had broken up. And I was in New York with my oldest brother uh, who'd lived there and celebrated Christmas with them. And I think I just wanted to get away from everything for a while. And then on the plane back, I got on the plane back after Christmas, flying back to Sweden. 
I got on the plane and I just wanted to be alone and I got a seat all by myself. And it was like amazing. You're flying coach and you get like two seats next to each other. It felt so great. And then like uh, final boarding, da da da, you know, cross check and report. And when they're saying that, I realized there's one person walking down the aisle towards my seat. And I'm like, no shit, there's this. she's going to take the seat. And not, not only is she's going to take the seat next to me, it's a goddamn she. And I feel like, you know, I don't need women around me right now. I feel like it's great to not because like they're all crap as everybody believes when they just, you know, broken up with somebody. And, and she has the seat, uh, like the window seat. I have the aisle seat. So I also have to stand up. So I'm like, when I, when I am about to stand up, I say like, uh, I thought, oh, I say like, should I jump in or do you want the window seat? Uh, and that was the first sentence. And 11 hours later, we landed and we had not talked for 15 minutes when both of us went to the bathroom. And otherwise we had talk and talked completely. She was a professional clown named Emily. And we had like an amazing time. I didn't know her last name. I didn't know where she lived. Uh, but we had talked about so many interesting things. We didn't exchange email addresses. I've never met her again. I have no clue who, who she is. I'm never going to find her online. But it was an amazing experience that came out of complete serendipity that I could have never have designed. And I think I have to remind myself sometimes that even if I believe that we should be thinking about, I mean, the future, you should think about your career, you should think about your you know, learning curricular and everything, there are just things in life where it's like, you can go to that trip in Chamonix and that might be the best thing ever. Or you can just like not. Sometimes just like doing something else is okay. Because I think the grass is so rarely green on the other side. And we just believe that. I think we have this really, really stupid thing, which I sometimes get really frustrated about. And that we believe. Like we believe that there's this hierarchy of interesting interestingness among people. That, you know, if you're whatever, Brad Pitt or Larry Page or Elon Musk or whatever, you know, it's a super top quartile of amazing celebrity within something. We just believe that person to be like a, a thousand times more interesting than the person next in hierarchy of amazing lessness. And then that person is a thousand times more interesting than the person below them. And just believe that. And when you actually get to sit next to the person who's top of that amazing hierarchy, you usually realize that, yes, they are very impressive people. They have their crazy flaws and they put their pants on one leg at a time, just like the rest of us. And I think that's been one of the biggest, both disappointments, but also reliefs of my life. I have met a lot of very, very amazing people. And almost every time, I have been first very impressed by the area that they're amazing in. And then I've been very shocked by the areas that they are subnormally good at. Like some of these people who are utter geniuses, but are just socially so inept or complete amazingly charismatic, but they, they, they don't know anything about anything. And it's just, I think for me, it's taught me that sometimes like, you know, that wild goose chase of like, you know, hanging out with the elites of the elites is going to make me so disappointed because not only am I going to find out that the elites of the elites in any subject are, yes, they're interesting in their thing, but they're also not very interesting in other things. But also it's going to make me feel that I'm always on the chase. That I can never sit down and read that book because there's someone just going to be just in front of me who's much more interesting and is going to disappear in 10 minutes. That trip in Chamonix is never going to come back. 
but the book can never come back, right? That means you should never, you can never pause. And I think that's uh, both a disappointment, but it's both a re- it's also a relief. I have found some of the most interesting th- people in my life by doing stuff like podcast podcasts or by uh, randomly serendipitously meeting people like that are professional clowns on airplanes or arranging uh, conferences and events about niche topics that I'm very curious about. Meeting those people, having dinner with these people, of people that I select that I wanted to meet and actually spending time with them in a non-transactional matter has been such an amazing experience of meeting these fascinating people. And that's also one of the things I found. I find that almost every person of the planet has something extremely interesting about them. And if you can't see what's interesting about them, either you are not listening well enough or they are wearing an armor and don't want to seem vulnerable and expose who they are. And it's maybe because of something you're doing. So I think that's what I felt when I meet all these people and the the armor is down and I'm actually listening, I find that every single person is so interesting in some shape or form. I mean, I've been on so many customer calls for startups I invested in other things. We're in the call, we end up talking about another thing. And then randomly, like when the call is over, because we talked about another thing in the topic, I just ask them, oh, by the way, Emily, we're hanging up now, or James or whatever who it is I'm talking to, like, what's your favorite author? And then we end up talking like 30 minutes about authors. And I find like five book tips and I end up reading books I've never read before. And I think they're the most amazing books. And I was like, wow, this James or Emily, whoever, wow, that was a great serendipitous thing, right? I was on a call just the other day with a professor of science writing at MIT. And we started talking about the topic super seriously. And because it was COVID, he was sitting in a weird place and I was sitting in a weird place. So we started talking about kids. We started talking about other things. We realized that he had small kids. We started talking about board games. And from board games, we started talking about computer games. We realized that we were both in love with the same computer game. We talked plenty about that computer game. And then we started talking about books and and we started and then we were like reminding ourselves that sorry we have to get back to the topic right and that talk was scheduled for 45 <laughs> minutes and we ended up talking in two and a half hours and we have talked twice since and i think that's it's crazy how that was about supposed to be a meeting about one topic and i think because we were both able to see the interesting aspects and facets about the other person we not only built a relationship but we also found so many other interesting things about each other um and i think that's the thing we often forget and the other thing that I often find is everybody who is achieving something personally or professionally or, or anything, they almost always have sacrificed something. And I think, and everybody like thinks now, Oh yeah. yeah, Okay. Michael Jordan never had friends or whatever. I, I mean that I think one of the things we should be much more transparent to each other in about is what are we sacrificing? Because I think that it's a very interesting conversation to have with people, I find. Just asking, like, in, like, you know, what's your worldview? What do you, like, where are you now in life generally? And what have you sacrificed? I think it's in a super interesting conversation because you find people like, yeah, I'm, like, you know, I'm doing this. And of course, I had to sacrifice this thing. And sometimes you think that the things that you, you can come up with a list of five things that you expect people to answer, like, whatever, I never had kids, or I never got this crazy high salary, or I never got that degree, or I never did my internship at this place or whatever, or I never, you know, I, I was the first employee at company X, but then I left, so I never got the stock options. That's so common to think, but people say so many things that you just go, oh, interesting. I've never thought about that, but of course that's a huge sacrifice. What is your favorite word? What is my favorite word? 
I think I think that question is so tricky because I think part of me wants to say a word that is like a beautiful word that is like you know a word that has uh, like a poetic sound, and part of me wants to of course say a word that has a certain meaning. I think if I would say a word for the sound and the kind of the history of that word, um, I think one of the more fascinating words. If I would pick one word that I use most often not for its meaning, but by, by the word itself. It's the word butterfly. And the word butterfly I find extremely fascinating because when you look at words, when, like, take the word gold or the word, word wheel or the word wheat, you can see how some of these inventions came from somebody or somewhere, and then they traveled from that place. So a lot of, a lot of the world have a very similar word for gold, and then it splits up in the Latin version. And you see like, you know, there are two stems now. And you can like see how that world travel. And you see that the world gold, uh, that word has, of course, massive implications because you use that word for trade. So you want to be able to trade. The other kinds are the invention words, like the word wheel. So some somewhere somebody came up with a wheel and then that word transported itself to other places. And you can see how... In some places, people maybe came up with it on their own, and then they have a separate word. But you can definitely see how that that invention traveled. And then you have words that are neither. Words that, they're not transactional words, like gold or silver, where you need to count and you need to like you know be able to measure it. And they're not uh, invention words, where it's traveled because the idea traveled. But they're words that just have no meaning for anybody externally. And butterfly is such a word. So butterfly... It's called so many different things in different languages. So like you had butterfly, of course, in English. You have sommerfugl, so summer bird in Danish. Summer bird, like butterfly, similar, right? But not the same. You have schmetterling in German, which is like a very, very unique word, honestly. You had you have fjäril in Swedish, which is doesn't like, look like many other Swedish words, but it's like a very ancient word. Uh, you have perronen in Finnish, which is, you know, again, a word that doesn't look like many other words. And I think that's what I find so interesting about the word butterfly. It's like it shows us that certain words have no reason to kind of, you don't need to have a conversation about them with other people. But the word, of course, you need to be able to point at something and say, you know, <laughs> that thing. It would be super strange if, you know, people in Portugal couldn't point at something and say, borboleta. Because, I mean, it's strange. There's something there that's flying. You need to be able to point at it. But a Portuguese person doesn't need to tell an English person. They don't talk about butterflies. And I think, I think that that's why I think the word butterfly is a very, very fascinating word. Because um, I think it shows how, it not only shows how that word in and of itself is unique, but I think the other thing I think it shows is the thing, things that words can show how society grew from, you know, over centuries and it shows how words are much more than what we think they are. What is your least favorite word? That's a good question. What's my least favorite word? I don't think I have a least favorite word. Do I have a least favorite word? Uh, least favorite. I'm thinking, is there any word where I would like, please don't use that word? No, I don't think so. I think a lot of people like, I think you could say like, you know, I have no problem when people like misuse words. I think that I'm very... I believe that words, even misspelled or mispronounced or anything, I think it's I think it's very interesting. I think that I can see a lot of people going frustrated. It's like it's not actually called that. It has another like that's the very modern way of using that word. Don't use it. It's supposed to be this. But words, 
they change. I mean, they change because societies develop. And I think somebody can say that, you know, the gender neutral pr- pronoun or something, it, they get frustrated because like, hey, why are you using this strange word? And I think it's, I think it's fine. I think it's like whatever, it, if it against your philosophy of how life works, I mean, you just have to realize that you're not going to be the last person on this planet. So, I mean, let language evolve. And if somebody uses a slang word or a swear word, I mean, come on. I think that so many times people fuzz about and try to correct other people's talk. And I think that, I mean, what we say is just like what we dress, how we dress. I think it's super important to realize that in certain situations, showing social uh, intelligence and showing that you understand that if we're meeting the king and the queen, I mean, please dress up and please like, you know, speak properly because if you don't like you show that you're not either you're like you're somehow an idiot i mean either you don't can't read the social context or you just believe yourself to be so goddamn important that you put yourself above everything else and it's not like you don't need to be a royalist and believe in the king but you realize there are many people who i mean loves the king and queen and you like talking to them in a nasty way and dressing badly is insulting a lot of people and why do you want to insult them? The only reason you wouldn't like to insult them is you believe yourself to be so important. And so I oftentimes feel like there's an elegance to fitting in. It's like you can disagree without being disagreeable is something I usually think. And I think that I don't I don't think I have any way or word that I dislike. And the same thing is like when people mispronounce a word. I read this amazing quote that I really love, which is when people mispronounce a word, I think that's also a sign of intelligence. And what it means is that they learn that word while reading. Because if people hear the word, of course, they can pronounce it again because they've heard the word. So if somebody mispronounces a word, that means they read it. And if reading, I mean, reading is definitely more more harder than talking. So I think it shows that these people are trying to learn. And I think that's something we rarely think about. We think that people who mispronounce things are stupid, but it's because they read more than you. What turns you on creatively, spiritually, or emotionally? Um, yeah, what turns me on creatively, spiritually, emotionally? I think I sadly am very turned on by progress, which is something I'm slightly fighting to be such so turned on by. I sort of, I so many times enjoy seeing like a progress bar and seeing, I don't mean like a progress bar. I hate when you reinstall you know, the computer and like see the progress bar. I just mean that I, I sort of like the feeling of progress. Like even when I'm reading like amazing book, just feeling that I like coming to the end of the chapter, it's just like, there's a good feeling about it. And I think that when you play a computer game and feel like you leveled up or something, there's a good feeling about it. But I think that there's, or like when I, whenever my, my kids learn how to bike or graduate or whatever, it's like, there's a good feeling about it. And I think that it's something I'm partly fighting because I think that there are certain things where you cannot see progress and seeing the progress means that it blinds me for the things that maybe I should be looking at, but they can't be measured. So it's something that I'm very, yeah, it's hard. But it's hard, I think, because I think that, yeah, I think progress turns me on, but progress in and by itself is not a good thing. Growth is not a good thing in and by itself. And I think that's the, problem i think with uh when we measure progress and growth we're very one-dimensionally there are many things that we destroy like if you measure a country's uh, you know value or worth or whatever with gdp then you of course like gross national product 
doesn't really tell you anything about how happy the people are in the country. And it also doesn't mean how well they're handling the environment. It probably means the inverse, because when you're shipping a lot of boxes here and there and building a lot of stuffs, then of course you're increasing your GDP. And that's like, sounds like a good thing. And the other say, oh, let's say we're going for happiness instead. I mean, if you just hand out uh, cannabis to everybody and allows them to play computer games and give them free Netflix account and give them a minimal universal basic income, I think a majority of people would be much happier. So you would bring up the average quite well. But I think that, so I think any kind of un, like one-dimensional progress is very dangerous. And it's so, I think all of us want a very simple word, world. I think we all want to kind of see, we want to compare apples to apples and we want to see, oh, so is you know, does does the US have more nuclear arms than Russia? And like, we really want to measure it on the same scale. And I think that not, like all of the good things in life can't be measured in a, in one scale. And I think that's why I think I'm a bit ambivalent about progress. But the problem is I'm built to want it. So I'm sort of avoiding loving it too much. What turns you off? Um, entropy turns me off massively. I think I get really frustrated when people increase entropy. Like when people like increase the disorder in the world. I think that makes me really frustrated. If people destroy books, if people, um, I mean, pollute, uh, if people interrupt intelligent people uh, when they're supposed to talk because the other, you don't believe that the other person has something interesting to say. I think it just, just like it frustrates me uh, when you see uh, entropy being destroyed um or entropy increasing to be more exact and i think it's like you know entropy increases in and by itself like it's it's something that happens it's it's like how the universe is 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 working but i think it's no, part it's of time the, it's time exactly so i think that part of what the things i think that's maybe the the progress i'm after is decreasing entropy it's just like can we just get things more structurally in order can we you know decrease climate change can we decrease inequality can we uh, i mean decrease infowars those three really really decrease entropy if we were able to do it uh, so i think that increased entropy is something that really really turns me off what is your favorite curse word uh, i don't think i have a favorite curse word curse word i think i use a lot of different curse words i think when i speak in english i tend to use pretty lame curse words and i think that i i feel that sometimes i use them in a very Tourettean way which i actually try to stop doing a bit because i think that a friend of mine told me actually a couple of years ago when i was on stage he kind of said afterwards, like, you know, you're swearing quite a lot on stage. <laughs> and, and I realized I'm swearing quite a lot on stage because when I talk to people, I think that I feel a lot of times that you're not supposed to swear. So, I mean, on stage. So when you're on swearing on stage, you're kind of showing that all bets are off and they can't expect what's coming next. And I kind of feel that that puts the whole conversation more interesting. But at the same time, I think it also like dummifies the conversation a bit. Um, but I think that I'm, I'm generally against both dumbifying the conversations, but I'm also very against over-intellectualizing the conversation. I think that I'm very much a proponent of infinite games and like making sure that things are play and that we kind of together construct things. So if we try to exclude people by using super intelligent words or slang, I think it becomes more complicated. At the same time, these things are identity labels. So it helps people to go and figure out if they're just listening to the right people right now or if they should walk away. So I think it's like, I think it's complicated. But I don't have any favorite curse words. What sound or noise do you love? What sound or noise do I love? I really like the sounds of cooking. Like I cook a lot. And I really sort of, I've, I've, I've found that 
um, anytime I've listened to a podcast or been on the phone or for that sake, lost my sense of smell for some reason, my cooking really like goes downhill quickly. And I didn't think about it, but like I use like both my sense of smell and hearing quite a lot when I cook. Just like, like if you're, for example, you're frying onions, you can actually hear on the onions, like what do you want to do with them right now? Um, or like the bubbling of a, of a stew, um, like when this, the bottom starts to stick to the pan, the bubbles are much bigger and you can hear that like a bloop, bloop. And then you're realizing that, oh no, now like more water and stir. So I really like the words, like the sounds of cooking. Cause I think those sounds, I don't know, they put me in some kind of harmony. I think that they, I think they put me in the now because I think that those sounds and those smells are, are vital meters for me to kind of make this dish what I want it to be. Uh, like if you're cutting an onion, I think cutting an onion, for example, is very fascinating. If you're cutting an onion and, 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 and try not to look at it, it's impossible. You cannot cut an onion without seeing it. And, and if you cut an onion and can't, and can't hear, it actually is quite a lot harder because there's a special sound when like you slice an onion tightly. And when you, when the knife hit the cutting board, you kind of click so that you're all down. So you're not going to get like a tail that sticks. And so I find that sometimes cooking forces me to the now in a way that I very much enjoy. And, and I, when I cook, I, 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 I often do many things at the same time, but often when I cook, I find it's very, very hard to do other things than I can be on the phone with somebody but it's almost impossible for me to do anything else. I can listen to music. I can listen to music or I can be on the phone. Um, but that usually makes the cooking slightly worse. But but uh, but the sounds of cooking, I think, are definitely some of my favorite sounds. What sound or noise do you hate? Sound or noise do I hate? I think I... I think I like second degree order, I hate the sound of, of children crying. And I, what I mean is like, when you, when you see a small child crying, I think that I don't have a problem with that small child crying. Like think about you're, you're joining this, you're like on an airport or on a train or, or like in an airplane and you're sitting there and you have a child crying. Of course, like a child crying is not an, it's not a wonderful sound, right? It's a very high pitched sound and it's an emotional sound that is of course hurting everybody who's not completely, completely emotionally blind. But I think one of the headaches I find with, with children crying is that not the child itself, because a lot of times children are not crying because they are in a very bad state. But the thing that hurts me with the children crying is actually the responsibility and the feeling in the parents, that most parents are in absolute pain when their children are crying. And many times they're in pain for things that they don't need to be in pain for. They're in pain because they believe their child to be in pain and the child is probably not in pain. And they're very much in pain because they feel everybody in the in the train or wherever they are is now hating them massively. And I think that anybody who's ever traveled with a child, uh, their own child in particular, of course, on a on a plane or train or whatever, and had their child crying, then remembers the time when they're on a train or a plane and another child is crying. And like whenever that happens to me, I get this both a sense of joy, not because someone else's child is crying, but I get the sense of joy that knowing that I'm not like, you know, contributing to this problem, but also the fact that, you know, that my children are not crying right now. And I think that there's, so I think that sometimes I feel like, um, like a pain when I hear children crying, because I know that their parents are now in massive pain for things they don't need to be in pain for. 
And it's so hard to tell the parents, like, hey, it doesn't matter, you know, uh, because the parents are going to, of course, be fussed up. But, and there are, of course, people on the train or plane that sort of thinks this is horrible because they're now trying to listen to opera on this, you know, Airbus 747 for some reason. What profession other than your own would you like to attempt? Yeah, that's a good question. Um I mean, I have attempted a lot of professions, actually. I mean, I'm not, of course, I'm not in a, in, a, in like, not that I've sort of uh, have the degree, um, but I I've tried being a coach. I'm trying being a therapist uh, for a while, and and I do it partly and and like career counseling, as we talked about previously. And there, I mean, similarly professions though. Uh, I've been a programmer. I've partly been a user interface designer. I've been a manager, a CEO. I've been a salesperson. Uh, I've been a strategist. Um, I've been on stage presenter, public speaker. I think there are many things, and I think that a lot of times, I think that I think I've tried many professions and like test them, and then there are professions I just like feel like there's no reason for me to try. And usually, also there's a, like a high credibility bar to get into them, so I haven't even tried them. And I think that I don't know. I think that if I was, I mean, I tried. I had it this year when I was doing a lot of uh, coaching with people, and it was very rewarding, but I also felt that it's something I had a hard time doing over long term. I was a very good year, but I felt at the end of the year that I was very happy that it was over. So it's, I think that I, I, I would love to test almost any profession, which is intellectually stimulating, allows me to meet a lot of different people. I think that would be great, but I think being stuck in any profession is something I wouldn't want to do. Almost any profession. Like I think if somebody said, choose any profession, stick with this now for 30 years. I think I would be like, no, I don't think I can do that. And the thing about being an investor is being an investor is not really a, like it's not a really a profession in one way because it's so many different things. So I feel like being an investor is one of the few quote unquote professions that allows me to change my hat multiple times every day and force myself to learn new things. What profession would you not like to do? So like out of the professions that I, I mean, I still, I mean, if I index across any profession, of course, there are many professions that I absolutely don't want to do. But I think that I think that if I look at professions that somebody would say, oh, maybe a person like you would like to do this kind of profession. I mean, there are certain professions I absolutely don't want to do. I don't think I would ever want to become a doctor. And I think the main reason I don't want to become a doctor is I think that, I think that, I think that like I am very kind of obsessed by progress, as I kind of said. And I think that the, My fear, if I would be a doctor, is that, I mean, first of all, you're kind of fighting something bigger than yourself. I mean, you're fighting like an infection or you're fighting aging or something, and you will eventually lose. I mean, you might win this battle, but you're going to lose the war. Um, but also, I think the horrible thing is also that I'm I very much like building systems and scaling things. And being a doctor is very much about being, it's a service profession in many ways. Like you meet people and if you're not there, you can't really help them. So like your output is very tied to your time, your synchronous time. And that's something I don't like. I very much like a synchronous in what I work. I like to like build something uh, like a, this four dimensional, you know, idea and then try to apply that so I can apply and scale that so I can get more use of my time. Maybe it's because I'm a programmer originally. It's like building the snippets of code that I can reuse as libraries is always a good thing. So I think it's a doctor would make me really scared because I think that then I would I wouldn't be able to scale my time in a good way. And I think that I, I would feel very trapped. And I would feel very trapped that that 
like, you know, it's 11 p.m. in the evening and somebody calls me and says, you got to come into the hospital right now because we have this case that you're so good at and you can rescue this person. I would feel that now I'm choosing between my own private egoistic reason of finishing this, you know, stand-up comedy on Netflix with my wife or go and rescue a person which is dying. Of course, I need to quit this TV series and go and rescue this dying person. But that also means that my life has absolutely no value and I'm living for other people. And it means every moment that I'm sitting and, you know, having a bar of chocolate or walking in the park is time when people are dying on my, you know, on my watch. Uh, and I think that's something I would have a very hard time handling. If you could be a co-founder of any startup at any era, which one would you choose? Holy smokes. Uh... Uh, I don't think I want to be, I think right now I wouldn't want to be like, if it was now, um, like if it was me, I mean, the person who I am now, I don't think I want to be a co-founder of any startup in any era right now. I think that the two startups I've started, they're both started. I have started reluctantly. I've started them more or less against my will, but I couldn't stop myself from doing them with other people. So I feel like, and I feel like part of me is, I think startups being the, like running a startups, startup, running a startup, I think is takes out the like brings forth the best sides of me but it also brings forth forth the worst sides of me so i think the problem is that i think that running a startup startup is something i'm very good at but it makes me intrinsically unhappy so i think that it's so hard for me because like i mean i want to do it because i feel like i can do this really well But then I realized when I'm starting to do it that I, I actually hate doing this because I don't like the person I am and I don't like how I'm spending my time. But because I'm really good at it, I feel appreciation. I feel, of course, progress. I feel enjoyment in it. And I think it's very hard. It's very hard for myself to... I, it's, it was a very hard process for myself, learning and understanding that, I mean, I am not the person I want to be when I'm going to start up, even if I'm good at it. 